You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. What's in a name? Well, for Hans, his name meant everything. Hans was born in Vienna, Austria in 1909, and he studied under physicist Philip Gross at the University of Vienna. After earning his degree in chemistry in 1935, Hans went on to join a group of German scientists working on a special project during World War II. They had been tasked with developing an atomic weapon to be used against the Allies. In 1943, Allied forces managed to sabotage the hydroelectric power plant where those German scientists were processing heavy water. A series of bombing raids over the following months finished the job, and Hans was forced to find new work. After spending some time on other projects in Europe, Hans moved to the United States and began studying the composition of meteorites in a relatively new field called chemical cosmology, or cosmochemistry, at the University of Chicago. His work there brought him to the U.S. Geological Survey in the 1950s, where he did some of his most famous research on how carbon traveled throughout the atmosphere. Hans analyzed trees by measuring the presence of carbon isotopes in their rings, those same rings that are used to calculate a tree's age. Now, to be fair, he hadn't gone into his research with any goal of a big groundbreaking discovery. Aside from satisfying his own curiosity, he had hoped to maybe make the science of carbon dating a bit more accurate. Instead, Hans found something strange. While studying the carbon-14 levels of a normal piece of wood in 1955, he detected the presence of a carbon isotope not found in atmospheric CO2. What he'd found was the kind of isotope created by burning fossil fuels. Hans spun his discovery into a new avenue of research, investigating whether the oceans of the Earth had stored carbon within their waters. Hans teamed up with oceanographer Roger Revell to conduct carbon-14 studies in the planet's oceans. Their scientific paper, published in 1957, concluded that carbon dioxide created by fossil fuel combustion had not lingered in the upper atmosphere as other scientists had theorized. Instead, much of it was being absorbed by the oceans. However, if emissions continued to grow at their current rate, he said, then carbon dioxide would collect in the atmosphere and trap the sun's heat, increasing the Earth's surface temperature. We call this phenomenon the greenhouse effect. An article in an Indiana newspaper dubbed the phenomenon global warming, the first time anyone had ever used the term. Hans and Ravel had brought the concept of man-made climate change to everyone's attention, academic and layman alike. Hans eventually moved to La Jolla, California, where he spent the remainder of his life. He'd frequently receive letters from admirers, mostly children, who had read his books and wanted to tell him how much his work had meant to them. There's just one problem. 
Hans hadn't written any books, especially ones for children. You see, the United States Postal Service had been accidentally delivering some other person's mail to the scientist. That's because there was another doctor living in La Jolla with a surprisingly similar name. Hans's last name was spelled S-U-E-S-S. The other doctor's name was spelled S-E-U-S-S, with the E and U flipped. Both, though, were pronounced the same way. Seuss. And it seems that Dr. Hans Seuss had been getting letters and bills meant for the other Dr. Seuss, the pen name of children's author Theodore Geisel. Hans Seuss passed away in 1993. His personal research papers were sent to the University of California, San Diego, where they have been cataloged and stored ever since. However, if you go to the library to look up his work, make sure you spell his name correctly. Otherwise, you might end up poring over the artwork and drafts of such bestsellers as Green Eggs and Ham and The Cat in the Hat. Dr. Seuss's collection of 8,500 items, including sketches, notebooks, videos, and photos, are housed within the main library building at UC San Diego. It probably doesn't help that the building bears the name of the man who wrote a scathing critique of industry and its effects on the environment if we don't change our ways. And no, I'm not talking about Dr. Hans Seuss. The library was named for the man who brought us the Lorax, one of the few manuscripts not present at the library of UC San Diego, a building otherwise known as the Geisel Library. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant. Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first like worthington and liz claiborne for her each in women's petite and plus sizes and stafford and mutual weave for him style and comfort for all even big and tall plus even more for the whole family like levi's and exertion here spring comes in all shapes sizes and colors jc penny make everybody count
At first, it didn't look like much. In the 1950s, archaeologists digging among the ruins of the royal palace in the ancient city of Ugarit in Syria uncovered a collection of clay tablets, most of which had crumbled and deteriorated, leaving behind just a few fragments of text. But one remained intact. The tablet was cataloged while academics worked on deciphering the wedge-shaped characters. Transcribing it proved difficult. The Hurrian language had long been extinct, so it wasn't until 1958 that language expert Emmanuel Laroche made a shocking discovery. The tablet, dating back to the 14th century BCE, contained a hymn, making it the oldest fully documented piece of music still in existence. While archaeologists had unearthed musical instruments made mostly of ivory and bone that date back further than the tablet, they had never found a complete musical melody intact before. So the museum in Damascus was now home to the world's oldest recorded song. And no one knew what all the words were, much less how to play it. Interpretation was difficult, as the Hurrian language had long died out. What they could translate was that the hymn had been written to Nikal, the ancient goddess of orchards and the daughter of the summer king. Once I have endeared the deity, the hymn starts out, she will love me in her heart. There are several lines to the verse and three interpretations, two of which came from LaRoche. While a few lines mention fruit, the last line implies fertility. Even to the experts, it's unclear if the melody was meant to appeal to the goddess's blessing of a harvest, or for children, or both. Now, transposing the hymn was difficult enough, but in the early 1970s, academics set out to put the lyrics to music. The back of the tablet contained instructions for tuning a musical instrument— most likely a nine-string Babylonian lyre, the most likely instrument of the time. Another section of the tablet contained what appeared to be musical interludes. And even more difficult, the text, written in a spiral pattern, alternated from the front of the tablet to the back, and changes were indicated by interval names and number signs. It was all a mystery. And although professors and academics alike eventually paired up the instructions, it wasn't a matter of just sitting down and playing the notes— you see, sheet music as we know it wouldn't be used for another 2,000 years. Once more, specialists in the field of music and language found themselves stumped. The problem was that when the unknown composer wrote the hymn, instructions revolved around a heptatonic scale. Keeping it as simple as possible, it looks nothing like modern sheet music. The arrangement between the words and how the notes are played came down to not only the interpretation of those words, but matching pitches and tone per octave with nothing familiar to go on. Basically, on the scale of difficulty, matching Hurrian lyrics and music to modern-day sheet music was a feat akin to understanding Einstein's theory of relativity written in a different language. Not only was the culture long gone, the specific characters indicated a localized version of the dialect, a sort of local slang. The knowledge they had of the Hurrian people seemed tenuous at best. It wouldn't be until 1972 when the tablet was finally decoded. And the best part? This breakthrough allowed the piece to be set to modern music, and it played to the public for the first time in 1974. Orchestras, guitarists, and other musicians have played their own interpretations of Hurrian Hymn No. 6 over the years since then. Though there are different renditions of the hymn, the melody is always hauntingly beautiful. If music is the universal language— then perhaps the Hurrian hymn is proof that music bridges time and culture. And that should be music to our ears. 
I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.